Hi, my name is Sarah Richardson and I am married to a Chiefs fan. Describe uh, your husband's connection to Patrick LeVon Mahomes II. Um, he doesn't have one. Um, he doesn't have a connection to any of them, actually. He knows everything about their life, but like they don't know he exists. So it's kind of like this, it's weird because it's like we have this second family or best friends that we are so invested in, but they don't know us. <laughs> um, who is number 87 on the Chiefs? No, I, I'm gonna guess Kelsey? Yes, okay. correct answer, correct answer. Obviously, could you name one Chiefs player from the beginning era of the Chiefs when you first started dating John? Tony Priest? No, Priest Holmes or Tony <laughs> oh, Gonzalez. Oh, yeah. Tony Priest. No. Priest no. Holmes or Tony Gonzalez. Very good. Back, exactly. I don't know Very what good. they were. And then if the Chiefs went, will you allow John to paint his office red? No. Will you allow me to get a Patrick Mahomes tattoo on my lower back? No. Other than Travis Kelsey and Patrick Mahomes, could you name one other Chiefs player? Um, uh, a CJ? No, that's another team, I think. Um, is there a Joe? Uh, a Bob? There's no Bob <laughs> and there's um, no Joe. A Tony, a David Smith. No. Mm, um, I, if you said one, I'd be like, oh yeah, I've heard you say that before. Okay. But okay. no. Does Devontae Adams play for the Chiefs? Yes, I know that name. No, no, he doesn't. No, he plays for the Raiders. Well, you said the name. Of course I've said the name. Okay, I mean, I know who Joe Burrow plays for. <laughs> who won the MVP this year? Um, Patrick Holmes won it. Yeah, he won the MVP. What's yes. MVP stand for? Most valuable player. <laughs> but if there was an MHP, that would have gone to Joe Burrow. Most hated? Most handsome, no, most handsome player. Handsome. Hated. H is for handsome, hated. not hated. No, handsome. And, I mean, Ivy knows, like, we're the only girls in the house, huh? Yeah. And sometimes it's really hard being with dad and brother because they're such Chiefs fans, huh? Yeah. And, like, when they, when we're losing, are daddy and brother really sad? Yeah. And do they, does maybe sometimes cry? Yeah. What does daddy say that we are? Chiefs family. We're a Chiefs family? Yeah. Yeah. And is that what we want to be or is that what we have to be? That's what we have to be. Yeah. Well, today is Super Sunday and um, I get asked all the time, uh, how are you a Chiefs fan? Why did you become a Chiefs fan? Did you grow up in Missouri? And the answer is no. Okay, when I was a kid. I really liked the colors, okay? And that was about it. And then when I fell in love with football, I just kind of dove in. And it was losing season after losing season. It was disappointment after disappointment until the 2017 NFL Draft when the, the Chiefs traded up 17 picks with the Buffalo Bills to slot number 10 to draft a quarterback out of the University of Texas Tech named Patrick LeVon Mahomes II. And now this is the third Super Bowl appearance in the last four years. 
it's sure to be a good game. Uh, I don't know who you're cheering for, but uh, man, I love the Chiefs and it should be a ton of fun. I became a Christian in 1995 in a church youth group. I love that youth group. I met my wife in that youth group. Most of my friends uh, in life I just met at that youth group and I got my first job in ministry in that youth group. And for most of my days in that church, it was the greatest place in the world. Doesn't mean it wasn't without flaws, okay? In 1997, I went on my first missions trip. It was a spring break missions trip to Mexico. Okay, some of you have been on trips like that. And it, I was in this small part of Mexicali and we were playing soccer with children and, and we did a vacation Bible school with them. And it was great, okay? Uh, then some of the leaders of our team said that they were gonna be doing some door-to-door -door evangelism, okay? I was so zealous, okay? I had John 3.16 on my letterman jacket. They asked if any of the teenagers wanted to go with them. And everybody else just kind of wanted to stay with their friends and play with kids. And going door to door is terrifying. But I volunteered, okay? I went with two of our team leaders to go do door to door evangelizing, okay? Now I was mostly quiet, kind of watching the leaders, praying silently with each doorbell. I remember hoping that no one would answer. And we would just keep walking. But after a couple of houses and a couple of sinner's prayers through a translator, one of the leaders said, John, you do the next one. I ring the doorbell and a woman who looked like she was in her 50s answers the door, okay? She was probably in her 30s, but when you're a teenager, when you're 30, might as well be 50, okay? So uh, I remember what I said. I quoted John 3:16, for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, that whosoever believeth in him shall not perish, but have everlasting life. Okay, I quoted the King James Version, whosoever believeth in him. And then I said, perish. Everyone will perish without Jesus. I told her to imagine the worst kind of torture, a constant agony. And now imagine that it goes on forever and ever. I said, that is what hell looks like and you'll go there without Jesus. And with Jesus, you'll go to heaven, and heaven's the greatest feeling forever and ever. Would you like to receive Jesus as your personal Lord and Savior and go to heaven instead of hell? That may have been your pastor's first sermon. Not very good, huh? Okay, now we're gonna come back to my first sermon at the end of this sermon. But critical to my understanding of evangelism was my understanding of John 3.16. And context matters, okay? John 3.16, and really the whole Bible, was never meant to be a one-liner, okay? And I think it's helpful and important to understand the context of John 3.16. Who said it? Who was it said to? What happens before it? What happens after it? When was it said? All of these questions should affect our understanding of John 3.16 and therefore our understanding of evangelism, okay? So here's the context. There's this religious leader named Nico, okay? His full name is Nicodemus, but we're gonna call him Nico. Nico was very religious. He was a teacher of the law. He was a member of the, the ruling Jewish council. And he hears about this Jesus. He hears about his integrity. He hears about his message. He hears about how he treats sinners. He hears about his miracles. 
But all of the things that he hears about Jesus, it, they subvert so much of the religion that he propagates. And it bothers him, okay? He doesn't have any categories for Jesus. Jesus has invoked in him all kinds of questions. Okay, Nico has all the answers. Nico doesn't have any questions, okay? He has the answers. His entire vocation is to teach everyone else the answers and then to answer everyone else's questions. And now, with Jesus, he's the one with the questions. But he can't ask Jesus in public because remember, religious teachers have all the answers, not questions. So he goes to Jesus under the cover of night in the Gospel of John, chapter 3. It says this, Now there was a Pharisee, a man named Nicodemus, who was a member of the Jewish ruling council. He came to Jesus at night and said, Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher who has come from God, for no one could perform the signs you are doing if God were not with him. Jesus replied, Very truly I tell you, no one can see the kingdom of God unless they are born again. How can someone be born when they are old? Nicodemus asked. Surely they cannot enter a second time into their mother's womb to be born. Born again. It's another good phrase for evangelism, right? Ye must be born again. Some of you have heard messages about perishing. Some of you have heard of hellfire and damnation. Some of you have heard pastors and preachers, and they literally scared the hell out of you. And you raised that hand, and you went to that altar, and you were born again. And the next week or the next year after you did a little more sinning, you ran to that altar again and you got born again again, okay? And then the next summer, you got born again again again. This phrase, you must be born again, it was spoken by Jesus to a religious teacher under the cover of night because the religious leaders weren't supposed to have any questions, only answers. Let me just say this very clearly. There is not a religious leader on planet Earth that has all the answers. Not me, not John MacArthur, not Mark Driscoll, not Andy Stanley, not the Pope, not Rick Warren, not Matt Chandler, not N.T. Wright, not the street preacher on the corner. Nobody has all the answers. And so Jesus tells Nico, you got to be born again. Born again. It is a metaphor of pregnancy. When you are pregnant with your first child, well, your spouse is pregnant, okay? You know that you are going to love this new baby. But there are no words that really encompass that love, okay? It transcends language. And your life is full. And your life is this new baby. Every new activity or babble is worth celebrating. And you're also very tired. You might feel like, my heart is full, but I have no room left. And then you have a second child. You had no room in your heart, okay? No room for more, no vacancy. Your heart was full. But when that second child arrives and there's no room left in your heart or for your life, your heart expands. It grows. You experienced a new life being born. Again, when Jesus is approached by a religious teacher, Jesus uses the metaphor of being born again. 
this metaphor of pregnancy. It's something personal. It means relationship. It means intimacy. It means nourishment. It means connection. It means new life. Whoa. Nicodemus is sitting there. He's like, God is not a subject to be argued over. No, no, he makes all things new. There's intimacy. There's new life. There's love. And being reborn often takes time. It's not something to be rushed. It's gradual. C.S. Lewis had a gradual conversion marked by soul-searching and intense conversations with his friends. He writes, I know very well, but hardly how, the final step was taken. It was like when a man, after a long sleep, still lying motionless in bed, becomes aware that he is now awake. He goes on to say that the final step was in all places um, in a motorcycle sidecar on a trip to the zoo with his brother. Lewis said that when they set out on that trip, he was not a Christian, but by the time they arrived at the zoo, he was. Conversion is usually a process. I think it's like that. Yes, there are times of sudden dramatic conversions, and those are beautiful, but they're not forced and they're not coerced. New Testament theologian N.T. Wright relates focusing on a singular salvation experience as framing your birth certificate and showing everyone who comes into your house. The most important thing is not that you can prove you were born. What matters now is that you're alive. Yeah, what matters most is that you're alive now. The question for the converted is not, did we say, pray, or do the right thing? No. The question is, how are we going to live? So, Nicodemus is like, how is it possible to be born again? Surely you can't go back into your mother's womb. Verse 5, Jesus answered, Very truly I tell you, no one can enter the kingdom of God unless they are born of water and the Spirit. Flesh gives birth to flesh, but the Spirit gives birth to Spirit. You should not be surprised at my saying, you must be born again. The wind blows wherever it pleases. You hear its sound, but you cannot tell where it comes from or where it is going. So it is with everyone born of the Spirit. How can this be? Nicodemus asked. He is perplexed. He's confounded. How can this be? The religious man who had all the right answers ends his encounter with Jesus with a question. How can this be? This is the last time Nico speaks in John chapter 3. And a few verses later, the narrator John writes, For God so loved the world that he gave his only Son, that whoever believes in him will not perish, but have everlasting life. This is not an equation. This is not an evangelism tactic. The focus is not on people perishing. So how is my sermon on the front porch of that 30-something-year-old woman in Mexicali, Mexico? Bad. Really bad. And yet, 
Later that night, reporting back to the other missions teams that we were with, one of the leaders got up and told the story how John, this 16-year-old kid, led a Mexican woman to the Lord on her front porch, and everybody clapped and everybody cheered. For many years of my life as a Christian, this is what I thought evangelism was. This is what I thought the main message of Jesus was. Turn or burn. I do not believe that anymore. I do not think that the heart of John 3.16 is threatening eternal damnation. The funny thing is, Jesus never said, go into the world and convert people to Christianity. No, what he said was, go into all the world and make disciples of all nations. Little apprentices of Jesus. Helping people follow the way, the teachings, the example, and the life of Jesus. Encouraging anyone and everyone to become his apprentice without manipulation. This is a much more open and dynamic and relational way of helping people who aren't followers of Jesus and want to become one. The point of John 3.16 is not that people perish. The point is Jesus saves the very next verse, John 3, 17, not quite as famous, but it reiterates the same point. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but to save it through him. That's the very next line of John 3, 16. He didn't come to condemn, he came to save. Here at Prodigal, we count conversations, not conversions. We are not obsessed with converting people to Christianity. We want to help make disciples, not converts. Caesar Nero did not execute the Apostle Peter and the Apostle Paul for telling people how to go to heaven when they die. Jesus didn't get crucified for telling people how to get to heaven when they die. The question isn't solely, is Jesus Lord of your life? The question is, is Jesus Lord of all? That is the question that overthrows empires. Another thing that we say here at Prodigal, don't invite people to church. Invite yourself to leave the church and find the people and love them. Jesus never invites anyone to a synagogue. The disciples in the book of Acts meet people where they are. And listen, I'm a pastor. I'd love for you to invite as many people to our church as you can. But evangelism is much more about how you live than the questions you ask. So is John 3.16 a good tool for evangelism? Maybe. Okay. I once read of a man who held up a sign at a busy shopping center saying, Free kisses come right up. And then he videos this, and he videos people walking away. And with every approach, every single woman kept their distance from this guy. But they also appeared to be repulsed, grossed out. And at the end of the day, one young woman walks with her friends and feels sorry for the guy. So she walks right up and lets him give her a kiss on her cheek. He tells her, that he has been out here all day, and she was the one person to respond. One person out of hundreds. When asked how many respond to the yelling of the gospel with a bullhorn, 
I've heard many street preachers say, if just one responds, then it's all worth it. And I would say, but how many did you turn away? Just like the public kisser who finally got his smooch, well, it was all worth it for the one. But one at the expense of hundreds? This is not the way of Jesus. You know who never got a bullhorn and yelled the gospel from street corners? Jesus. So, how can we share Jesus without being weird? Evangelism should be like dancing. Okay, I love dancing. I love weddings. In high school, I love to dance. Oh, it's just so fun. Some of you are freaking out because you, you can't dance, okay? So what am I going to do? What? We should hear the music of the gospel. And then our lives should move to that music. We should be in sync with the teachings, life, and example of Jesus. It's not about winning and losing. That's one of the reasons I think that the dance metaphor is so beautiful. Dancing is not about winning and losing. When the music ends, you don't sneer at your partner and say, gotcha, I won that dance seven to three. No. Also in dance, you need to have a willing partner. In evangelism, We've stood up on street quarters and we went door to door and told people whether they wanted to hear it or not. They're not willing. There's a word for when you pull someone onto the dance floor to dance with you and they're not willing. Assault. The great Danish philosopher, Soren Kierkegaard, describes an evangelist as a person who hides in the bushes. And when his friend walks by, he sneaks up behind him and kicks them in the butt, okay? Kicker guard uses a little more graphic word for butt here. And then he dives back behind the bush. His friend turns around and sees no one, and then he continues walking. But as he walks, he is no longer walking along semi-conscious. He's startled, he's scratching his head, he's looking around, he's wondering, who was that? What's going on? Am I being watched? His whole mind and his whole curiosity is awakened. We can't be pushy. We can't be bossy. We need to give people time to process and to think and to reflect. Never be coercive or combative. Rather, be like a midwife. Midwives know that giving life takes time and cannot be rushed without potentially lethal damage. New life always takes time, always takes care, evangelism, yeah, it should be like dancing. We should hear the music of the gospel and we move our lives to that tune. Are we making people thirsty for the water of life, for the living water that Jesus provides? Can people see the love of Jesus in your life? I think evangelism is more like helping making people more thirsty. I want what you have. Not shoving water down their face or throat. The gospel according to you. The gospels of Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John are read by more than a few, but the one that is most read and commented on is the gospel according to you. You are writing a gospel, a chapter each day, by the things that you do and the words that you say. Men read what you write, 
whether faithless or true, what is the gospel according to you? Do men read his truth and his love in your life, or has yours been too full of malice and strife? Does your life speak of evil or does it ring true? What is the gospel according to you? So, what happened to our religious leader, Nicodemus? What happened to Nico? Did he get born again? He's mentioned two more times in the Gospel of John. In chapter 7, all of the religious leaders, um, the temple guards, the Pharisees, uh, they're all debating about Jesus. They're like, he's deceiving people. He's not the Messiah. We should have arrested him when we had the chance. And in the middle of this debate, of everybody piling on to Jesus, good old Nicodemus says this in John 7, verse 50. Nicodemus, who had gone to Jesus earlier and who was one of their own number, asked, does our law condemn a man without first hearing him to find out what he's been doing? And the religious people are like, has he deceived you too? Something seems to be happening to Nico. He's drawn to Jesus. He's still a religious leader. He's certainly not convinced that Jesus is the Messiah, but here he is in the middle of the religious boys club defending Jesus, at least for a bit. He's not a disciple. He's not converted, but perhaps, just perhaps, he is being converted. And then after Jesus' crucifixion and death, we read this in John chapter 19. Later, Joseph of Arimathea asked Pilate for the body of Jesus. Now Joseph was a disciple of Jesus, but secretly, because he feared the Jewish leaders, with Pilate's permission, he came and took the body away. He was accompanied by Nicodemus, the man who earlier had visited Jesus at night. Nicodemus brought a mixture of myrrh and aloes, about 75 pounds. Taking Jesus' body, the two of them wrapped it with spices, strips of linen. This was in accordance with the Jewish burial customs. At the place where Jesus was crucified, there was a garden, and in the garden, a new tomb, in which no one had ever been laid. Because it was the Jewish day of preparation, and since the tomb was nearby, they laid Jesus there. After Jesus was crucified, Nicodemus, at the risk of his own reputation and career, is with a disciple of Jesus, and together they placed the body of Jesus in the tomb. Nico had become a disciple. Nico was converted. And it only took him 16 chapters. What's your conversion story? Listen, I'm still being converted. It's part of what it means to be a follower of Jesus. The journey is never done, so we keep asking questions. We keep loving our neighbor. We keep loving Jesus. God, I pray in your name that you help us to show and share your love, your gospel, your grace, your mercy by how we live and by how we love. In Jesus' name.
We want to thank you so much for joining us online at Prodigal Church Fresno. If it is before 10 a.m. on Sunday, uh, February 12th, come by. Bowler High School, we've got a party going, and we've got inflatables, and we've got a taco truck, and a salsa competition, football-themed service, some giveaways. Uh, we're going to have an incredible time. We hope you have an amazing day, an amazing Super Bowl, and go Chiefs. Grace and peace, Prodigal Church.